Greetings, I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. For all the returning listeners and subscribers, thank you for coming back. To those new to the channel, welcome. Thank you for taking a moment to check us out. If you do enjoy what you are hearing and watching, please don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button on your way out. We have a fun show today. We're going to talk about something a lot of you people people enjoy and that's hip-hop it's been over 50 years since the genre's inception at a house party in the bronx before i go any further let me introduce part of the panel one of the members still isn't here yet please welcome my homie my dog my co-host the man of the mau mau hour he is the pascal robert um, is it a sign that the lightest black person on the panel today is a party? Oh, must, must that, be relegate all transgression to light skin complexion. Um, uh, you know, Howard Hewitt's never on time, Bert's never on time, Lionel Richie, the long list of light skinned Negroes, it's always late. Coincidence? Hmm? Let's be dodging <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's just hope he's okay. You know, he does live in LA. Give him that pass. He's in LA, and you know he could be stuck in traffic. And let's welcome a new member to the TIR family. Someone that our tardy brother uh, introduced me to recently. I've been reading his writing and enjoying what I've been reading. Oh, I think he's coming. Having video problems, but please welcome prof- associate professor at Carnegie Mellon and author Jason England. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for uh, for showing up. Uh, sure. I'm pre- pretty excited about this show. We're putting it in the um, chat. A link to your article about hip hop. Also, read his article about American fiction. Whoa. And also, I just watched you on or listened to you on Champagne Sharks um, t- discuss American fiction as well. That was a very, very good episode. Um, Some super smart people on that episode with me, man. I was, it was really humbling. I mean, Michael Jackson uh, has a Pulitzer, and you know, anybody just like Michael Jordan, Michael B. Jordan, anybody named something like Michael Jackson who comes up and makes his own, <laughs> <laughs> you got to be impressed, right? So. Um, and forgive me my sunglasses, but I get extreme migraines at times. So um, it was either lights out totally or. Oh, it's no, it's totally fine. Um, I think it adds to the vibe. Um, it's very it's very 90s R&B of you. <laughs> <laughs> it's very I'll be sure of you. You're fine. I knew you was going to say I'll be sure, man. Well, you know, sure. you look like one of his offspring. Speaking of light-skinned people, uh, he he showed up. He pulled an Eddie Kane on us from the Five Heartbeats. Please welcome Bert Cooper. <laughs> At this point, you need no introduction. Just you know. I still like to get one, you know. Oh, this I'm sorry. Nice. I'm sorry. Um, I'm pretty excited about this. Uh, Steve, one of the viewers of the show, was giving me shit. 
you said it's Black History Month, Jay. You haven't had enough Black people on. I was like, aren't I enough? No, I need more. So they this never, is the most. They never think you're enough. They never think you're enough. <laughs> I think that's always your fault. Maybe like the dark skinned dudes just don't talk with Jason Miles. Oh, that's fucked up. If that was the case. <laughs> I, my feelings would be so hurt. He's darker than I am. <laughs> it was like paper bag testing motherfuckers. Like, no, that nigga's not one of us. He never would have been an X Clan. <laughs> This is also a very East Coast panel we have, as I am the only person here representing the West. Well, that. Technically speaking, originally representing the West. I'm still in the West Coast of Mexico. West. Bert is in the West right now. He, but his heart is in Philadelphia. <laughs> they say oh. short dog can't rap, but my bank account approved that. <laughs> I do miss the Northeast. I'll be back next week. Uh, yeah, like March 1st. So basically next week I'll be visiting. Get to enjoy uh, February, the worst month of the year for us. Yeah, that sounds horrible. You stay the fuck out of there till the fall. Um, well, let's get to the show topic, guys. What happened to our hip-hop revolution? I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened it, read it. It said they were suckers. They wanted me for their army or whatever. Picture me giving a damn. I said never. When I first heard these incendiary lyrics of rebellion, I knew that groups like Public Enemy, NWA, X-Clan, to me and other fans of hip-hop, these songs were anthems of social change. A political storm was brewing. The L.A. riots happened in 92. And rap would be the soundtrack to that urban rebellion. But after we've yelled out four-letter expletives at law enforcement, and rhetorically fought the power, what did Hip Top bestow upon its loyal supporters? Eric Adams? Scholarship in the genre? It, like anything, like most people, as they age and get more and more indoctrinated into capitalism, has hip hop lost its edge or was the edge an illusion all along? Projection from a chattering class of journos who are attempting to do for hip-hop what boomer music journalists did for 60s rock and roll. Hip-hop is middle-aged, balding and bloated now, driving around in an expensive car trying to recapture its <laughs> rebellious past. But did it ever really have revolutionary potential to begin with? Pascal, I'll start off this question with you. Since you're the most senior of the bunch and you were there for the early days of hip-hop uh you, you mentioned before you were at those early block parties as you've had older cousins that were djs there are several documentaries trying to place hip-hop and the culture as a precipice for some sort of or urban uprising you originally made your appearance on this show stating that black power has succeeded culturally where it failed politically is hip-hop a missed opportunity for communities of color I think that one of the one of the most dangerous things any community or various communities can do is depend on pop cultural production as a means of liberation. Cultural production at best can reflect the political realities of a phenomenon, but to accept expect <laughs> that cultural production in a capitalist society will be the director of the actual political reality, I think is a very dangerous conclusion. 
So I would make the argument that part of the problem is that the way in which in the wake of the demobilization that was coming about after the 60s, coming into neoliberalism into the 70s, the rise of Reagan conservatism, people were looking for radicalism in any way they could find it, and they were looking to project it on youth behavior. And hip hop was targeted largely because it had all of the extent atmospherics of something that looked like it was going to challenge the status quo. When in reality, it ended up becoming like most popular culture, a reflection of the capitalist reality of that time. I'll pass the mic to Jason England. Um, you know, I think I think it's really difficult. This is such a such a broad topic, right? Yes. So um, you know, I don't wanna I don't wanna sell hip hop short, like in its infancy what it incipiently like bared out was revolutionary and counterculture because necessarily it was pretty organic as a movement, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I think a lot of people lose track of just how um, counterculture and subversive hip hop was. I'm old enough to remember when I went to high school, um, I got a scholarship to get out. I, I grew up uh, between a homeless shelter and a housing project in New York. Mm -hmm. I got a scholarship to go to a boarding school and you did not hear rap at parties. You had to have a separate party called the Minority Dance. Whoa. I swear to you, there were seven black people at my, my school at my freshman year. By the time I graduated, maybe we had 12 out of 250. Um, and we would get together with all the black kids at the other um, private schools within two hours. And then that's when you would hear some rap music played. Then I went off uh, to college. I dropped out. I worked in civil rights. And for two years, I worked 60 hour weeks and read books. And I came back to college and someone took me to a party at a frat house and DMX was playing and the white people were dancing. And it was like I was an unfrozen caveman. <laughs> I, didn't understand what, I was like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. Because no one listened to anything I never saw a white person really listen to rap music unless they were listening to the raunchier songs off an of NWA album, right? So, like, um, yeah, like, initially, like all countercultural movements, I think there was a potential for, for, for revolution. But as soon as it became some shit to sell, um, it's, it's really difficult to beat the machine of capitalism, right? Capitalism is a beast, and I think you have to credit it. Sometimes I think we blame people. Um, and, and sometimes you have to sit in awe and you have to understand that capitalism and Yakub are the house and the house always wins. They figure it out. They figure out how to put your shit on a t-shirt. They figure out how to pay the right people. Um, and the next thing you know, whatever energy um, that was bubbling beneath the movement and made it a culture, um, that becomes neutered. And, and I think we saw that, right? And, and, and obviously there were a lot of people who sold this culture out. And I think a lot of us have been incredibly confused as we go on a ride with something that we love, that we grew up with. How do we continue to take it every step of the way, right? And, and, and keep close to what we held dear and what we knew since we were young. Um, how do we just let that go when we see it deviate from what we once knew? We kind of adapt and we change as well. And, and, and I think we adjust 
Um, and, and something that I think, and, I, and we talked about this over voice notes, mm -hmm. something I think is painful to admit, and I don't know if people are ready to admit this, uh, we're in an era where black cool is dead. Um, it's not just hip hop, but when you lean away from the margins, spiritually, because we're still very marginalized as a people, mm -hmm. but spiritually, when you become so aspirational, when you buy in so wholesale to capitalism, you lose your cool. You go from Billy D. Williams playing Lando Calrissian to Donald Glover playing Lando Calrissian. You go from someone like Tupac being a, a, a sort of a, a guy who straddles pop and hood stardom, who's for all his faults, incredibly dynamic. Yes. He has Black Panther history. Yes. Uh, you know, has a history where, where you know, X-Clan used to hold him down and, and, and a street history to someone like Kanye West. Um, you know, who, who's not particularly dynamic, um, doesn't sparkle in front of a camera, uh, doesn't embrace blackness as much as he wants to flatter whiteness. And I think that Oof. we lost our edge, uh, certainly as a hip hop culture, uh, because we got a little bit of money uh, and, and we saw the potential for more of it. And I, I think hip hop kind of got lame and bougie. And, well, and so you know, let's, uh, let's let's let the younger uh, person here that grew up in the middle of hip hop. Uh, he's born after or kind of in the middle of the golden age and, and comes to young adulthood when uh, hip hop is pop music. So, Bert. Yeah, I mean, I'm born in 88. So by the time you get to 95, 96, 97, I'm still really young. And then in high school, me is like 2002 through 2006. Um, you know, the revolutionary question for me, because I'm born in 88, you know, I have to have this retrospective, you know, looking back on those years, when you're looking at, you know, black music as revolutionary, I feel like when you put it in the box of, is it revolutionary, you know, did it overthrow capitalist society? Nah. It didn't, but there's these moments where, you know, you think about earlier music, you think about James Brown very early on, and then you think about James Brown, you know, singing for Nixon and talking about, you know, just open the door and get out of his way and he'll go through himself. Um, I think when it comes to the, the areas and neighborhoods where hip hop first launches, it's not a revolution against capitalism exactly, but I would want to give folks, you know, credit because they, the other musical forms that they had were already starting to become so commercial. You had, again, James Brown as an example of just one black artist who was already, you know, merging and really was a part of the mainstream. And so hip hop is this outlet when you're taking, when you do the expansive view of hip hop, where it's not just the music, but it's the scene, it's the art scene, it's the dancing. It was a new outlet for people to express what they had going on and to contribute to art and culture, at least in their spaces. Um, it was a way to kind of stick it to the man in places like New York where, you know, more power outages, that's a chance to get equipment and to do something technical and to break into, you know, black folks weren't getting access to that or not as much access to that new 80s gear for increasing production. So stealing that shit and getting experiment with it and getting to come up with your own shit. Yeah, but every nigga in New York didn't steal shit, right? Not every LA riot happened. Like, this is what let me so, before you go on that whole every nigga in New York stole shit and hip hop. No, no, no. Thing, I wasn't gonna go down you know, that because the LA riots happened and it's not like great albums came out of that shit. There were still music stores in LA. So no. 
No, I'm Calm down, that. New York. I know you guys want to have a, a thieves history for hip hop, but I'm not buying it. No, I'm not. Some trying of to niggas sell, have money. I'm not trying to sell that Netflix documentary. And you, Jason <laughs> Miles, we've talked about this so many times. Where like when you look at the actual neighborhood breakdown, a lot of these niggas come from like the Friday neighborhood, where it's like one block over is Debo. <laughs> yeah. on the nice block and one block yeah. away is a lot more dangerous than like what white folks are growing up with but you're still you're on the nice street your, your dad's a dog catcher your mom's like a nurse or something you're right there the danger can touch you but you're a little bit more comfortable yeah but i just think when you're looking at you know the artistic side of it the earlier hip-hop um i do think it had i guess revolutionary aspects there i don't think it overthrew Capitalism. I, you know, I wasn't there to actually hear how many of these cats really were reading, you know, the books they might reference in one line. Because to your point, I come up in the '90s where you got dudes like Tupac who casually throw it out, or everybody wants to imply that they're reading like the 48 Laws of Power of Machiavelli or you know, Garvey and shit like that. But it starts becoming more bravado. And once we fully get into my era, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm coming up in, you know, the 90s and the early 2000s when you are, uh, what's it, when you're polling black folks, when I'm coming up, it is almost uniformly, they do not have a good opinion of hip hop and they do not have a good opinion of rap, um, specifically Pew polling, you know, black folks in 2007 and some 60 plus percent of black folks, both men and women say hip hop is a negative influence on black people. When you switch to rap specifically, it's 71% say rap is a bad influence on black people, almost identical to white folks. And when you split up by gender, you got 74% of black women in 2007 saying rap is a negative influence. And so for me, between black women who are big in the black church, between all the NAACP and all the old civil rights movement people, it doesn't even feel like my listening to the rap of my day is countercultural. It doesn't feel like I'm a part of any constructive cultural mo movement because it feels like this is against both the more prominent blacks in my area or the working class who are above like my dirt poor variety and against white America. So it's anarchist is how it feels, but it doesn't feel like we're plugged into anything. This is where the, the kind of for me, the lineage of hip hop gets interesting. Um, Pascal has showed me a while back. There was this documentary that Chuck D did. How many years ago was that, Pascal? Maybe like 20 years ago? Yeah, it was early, early aughts, early aughts. And he puts the beginnings of hip hop in disco. Do you want to explain that a little bit more, Pascal? Yeah, he talks about how hip hop really actually comes out of the disco movement in that, I think it's called the Godfathers of Rap or the Godfathers of Hip Hop. And he talks about how the, the, the technology of <coughs> DJing comes out, actually out of disco, and that the disco movement in New York City in the late 60s, early 70s is really the birthplace where we see a lot of these hip hop development with people like Grandmaster Flowers and a lot of other places before the 73 phenomenon that Cool Herc is accredited for participating in. And what's interesting is we had. Um... Jeremiah McAllister on the show, giving us kind of a history of, of dance music and house music. And one of the things that we brought up on that show where we're having this conversation of like, where does this all start is funk music, um, like Parliament, uh, Sly and all those guys, 
disco is supposed to be the upper class version of funk music. Bougie funk. By the time you get to chic. And if hip hop is supposed to be a derivative of disco, I guess I'm asking the question, hasn't it always been party music and never anything other sonically revolutionary, I think, but other than that, no? Oh, Jason's no, China, definitely, China. Not. definitely not. I mean, you you had a I would say that they were that hip hop was fumbling toward uh, a sort of politic. I won't say it ever got there. What I will say is that it was definitely anti-establishment, right? Okay. Now, what that means is not necessarily radical or political in some moments, but it knows its relationship to the establishment, right? Part of it is that the establishment lets it know you're not getting in. I mean, let's not forget that people shitted on rap forever until it became essentially American yes. Republic music. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think something that you all are talking about that I'm thinking about as I hear you talking, something that's been lost is hip hop culturally is, is something that's very like, almost like James Joyce shit. It's a, it's a culture in conversation with itself in terms of blackness through the samples that we all recognize, the way it connects us to our aunts and uncles music, the references. At some point that changed because it started to flatter uh, mainstream tastes majority taste because suddenly people were handing out bags of money. It was um, necessarily extremely black and socially aware because the audience wasn't there to give it money unless it spoke about the issues of the people consuming the music. So I do think in that way, there was a subversive nation. Like, were there party records? Yeah, I saw someone dissing Will Smith, which well, I'm not a Will Smith fan as a human or as a rapper, but he did have some old school classes. Rock the House is a classic. Dude uh, is beatboxing underwater and all that on that. Like, <laughs> like these are these are classic records. Those, those, and those party records are community records, and that's what made hip hop interesting because it was organic. It was happening in front of people. It was self-referential. It had dimensions and depth. And I think that is revolutionary artistically. But certainly, like when you talk about Public Enemy, even early Tribe, mm -hmm. uh, X Clan, of course. Brand Nubian. Brand Nubian's album ran my block. Like when you used to have block parties in Harlem, you would play all the songs from that time. When Brand Nubian's uh, album came out, first album, One for All, whatever, um, they played that on repeat for the whole party. I've never seen that happen. And that is nothing but 5% of shit. Now, do I agree with all of it? No, but it was trying to raise the social consciousness. I mean, we're talking directly about even K Solo. Uh, prison, oh, yeah. fugitive, um, the corrupt system, um, black empowerment. This was a music that gave you a sense of dignity, and you weren't getting that from the rest of society. I mean, what I, I thought of hip hop as black superhero music. It was the first time I saw Rakim. First time I saw Rakim, I felt like I saw God. <laughs> I saw him come on screen. I said, okay, it's cool to be someone like me mm -hmm. on 126 in Lexington. Because the, the video was shot in Harlem on 125th, too. And I said, oh, shit, all right, we got heroes. I've never seen a motherfucker like this. The confidence, the swagger, the fashion. I mean, 
there was something um, incredibly empowering about this. I mean, back to your point, Jay, about black cool. And I would love to get, you know, Pascal and Bert's perspective on this because rap is so different for you, Bert. We're growing up in an era where you kind of have to know how to dance. And part of being an MC was you were controlling the, the party and you were kind of even directing the dance moves of the party. We're talking about the early days of hip hop. So a lot of rappers actually can move. Big Daddy Kane used to dance in his videos. He had skills. By the time MC Hammer comes to be, and dancing probably takes more of the attention away than the than the lyrical skills, right? I don't, I don't know anyone that walks around quoting Hammer bars, but um, what it, it is interesting when you talk about the end of Black Cool because I'm thinking about that that moment when you, when you talk about someone like Rakim that just had so much personality listening to him on those on those early on paid in full and even seeing the video i thought he was like the coolest dude alive you know what i mean i thought big daddy kane was like the coolest dude alive i hella wanted to curl fate uh Pascal, how did you? I mean, for you, you said Run DMC, uh, Raising Hell is the hardest record you ever heard. I mean, yeah, I mean, all of these records are, are my contemporaries. I, these are, these are, this is, this is all my high school years, you know, from 82 to 86. This is the music that I'm seeing. And I cherish the music. And I, and I, I understand what everyone is saying here in that it was, when I, when we say it was revolutionary, it was consciousness awareing in that you're seeing black youth exert dominion and control over, or you believe they're exerting dominion and control over the black image at a time during the reactionary Reagan years where you would think that there'd be almost a kind of retreat of those presences in the media. So I understand the need to ascribe a revolutionary nature to these phenomena. But when I think about a revolution, a revolution is a defined phenomenon that challenges the status quo function of the reality of the governing project that exists at that time. And I think that part of the problem that we have is that we project these kind of revolutionary definitions on youth phenomenon when in reality, they are a reflection of the youth grasping for a reification or a validation into the system, not necessarily trying to deconstruct or destroy the system. Bert? Yeah, you know, it's interesting to think about it in the phases that are happening because, you know, um, the album that was really close to me, particularly for like the tween years where like music is just burrowing into your skull is, you know, DMX. It's dark and hell is hot. And then also flesh my flesh, blood my blood. And these, you know, his tracks, you're getting to a point where you have, you know, more or less that uh, Bedouin or Arabic understanding of like tribe affiliation, you know, the saying me against my brother, me and my brother against my cousin, me and my cousin against the world, where it is really just fucking survival music. What I'm getting out of DMX is this, it's just 
it has no bigger aspirations. It's just expressing what it's like to live there. I mean, DMX has many songs just about manic depression, about being deep in depression, and he loses the will to like cut his hair or even to take showers anymore. It's mostly shit I'm connecting to because it feels like what I'm seeing around me and it doesn't have much of a revolutionary impulse and you know dmx it just kind of continues from there with the gangster scene you know there were a lot of gangster rappers but who mix it up dmx is kind of like let's just keep going darker let's just keep going darker and grittier and darker and more gritty um but to pascal's point you know i looked at uh what's the word uh, Jay-Z's, I'm sure you all saw it, maybe you heard about Jay-Z's little interlude at the Grammys, talking about Beyonce um, and how she didn't get album of the year, which, you know, Shucks. I don't I don't know the exact science that they do, but uh, you can look up a list of, you know, winners, you know, most awards. Um, they're all relatively close to Beyonce and several of them don't have an album of the year win, but that's separate. You know, Jay-Z gets up on there and the speech that he gives to everybody is, you know, forget the Grammys. You got to keep showing up until they give you all those accolades you deserve, until they call you chairman, until they call you a genius, until they call you the greatest of all time. And so it has this facade of, you know, black people standing up to the man. He's revolutionary. He even throws up the, you know, the fucking trophy a little bit for a second. Um, but who is they, you know? Who's the one that he's waiting on the accolades from? It's just the fucking establishment. What's the path? Become powerful yourself. Become the fucking chairman yourself. Who's helping you? It's completely individualistic. And that's the vision. And that's the thing that's supposed to be this celebratory black power. We still got it. You know, Jay-Z fucking moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to clarify. I don't disagree with a single thing Pascal said. So I hope I wasn't coming across saying like actually hip hop revolutionary. What I'm talking about is, I still have to respect you if you are. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with a single thing. I, I totally agree. I mean, I think the spirit of the culture was a lot more subversive in common culture. Is all I'm saying. There's none of that left at this point. Um, that's you know, fair. That's fair. That's that's that. That I think. Listen, I think that there was something subversive and countercultural to the original urban, even the the, the 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 black parties that I was growing up and going to in Jamaica, Queens, where cats were just coming up to the microphone and plugging the electricity into the into the light, the lighting system and and rapping to get a party out of kids in the street. That's subversive. Of course. There's something subversive that that's creating a sense of community of where one is not designed to exist. So you're from Jamaica, Queens. Yeah, Jamaica, Queens. Yeah. Yeah, Jamaica, Queens as well, man. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I, I agree with you that there is definitely uh, on the an attempt to undermine certain aspects of the status quo there, but I'm terms of from a political perspective, I think when we talk about revolution, we should be very specific with our terms. 
I don't think. Oh, yeah, yeah, I agree. I was saying I agree. I totally agree. I wanted to make that clear. I, I, I don't think hip hop is revolutionary in that way whatsoever. Yeah. So, you know, but at the same time, as a countercultural phenomenon, not we shouldn't poo-poo it or undermine it at all. But I think that, like most black cultural production, because the creators of the of the production are so divorced from capital, mm-hmm. once they get introduced to capital, they become oh, the most ripe for exploitation the fastest. And, and and this is this is sort of my point is you can't ever become revolutionary or subversive. You might have that spirit, but you can't become that once you become a thing to sell. So I agree with you there. The examples are obvious. Ice Cube being the most glaring, right? I mean, you're talking about something <laughs> I want to kill Sam. You know, like whether you agree with all of the, the the undertones and overtones of America's Most Wanted and Death Certificate, I'd never heard anything so electric, even when it was ignorant. Ice Cube scared me when I was young. For that motherfucker to now be what he is lets you know that everything Pascal was saying is correct, right? There was a spirit there, and that spirit can never translate into anything material once somebody starts to get capital and become becomes a person who appeals to an oppressive mainstream audience for sure but we also have to be honest about a few things that i think people get confused about here one is black culture and hip-hop culture and new york culture all overlap but they're very separate new york culture is not rap culture my aunts and uncles did not listen to rap music Ever. They don't want to hear none of that shit. Ooh. And it went other places. Rap music went to California and did incredible things there. It went to the South. It went to the Midwest. New Yorkers want to hold on to it like it's their property. That's not how culture works, right? But also, um, you have to be honest about the very, it's like Adam and Eve in the garden. As soon as Sylvia Robinson signed Sugar Hill Gang and stole tracks from other motherfuckers, and had these New Jersey dudes rapping these lyrics from these from the live performers, hip hop was done. As soon as she started, that was a black woman putting yeah. people in what they would call a slave deal immediately. So a lot of what we say when we think about the past, we're like, oh, what happened? It got corrupted. Nah, homie, the shit was corrupted from the beginning. People were taking from each other from the very beginning, black and white, uh, uh, black and white alike. So if you're going to be naive about what capitalism is and what it is to sell a thing, then maybe you'll have rose-colored glasses about how revolutionary things are. I don't feel that way whatsoever. I'm just saying it's a damn shame to see the spirit gone. It's a damn shame for Black people to not be aware of their position in society and to aspire to run Ponzi schemes the way that Jay-Z has people aspiring to be. You know, what is it? He brought Bitcoin to Marcy. I mean, he brought gentrification uh, to my, my my family's old neighborhood in Brooklyn, you know. So it's, it's like seeing that we've embraced this is really the tragedy to me. It's not that we ever had a revolution in hip hop, but it's that there's some sense of counterculture subversion and, and revolution in the spirit that's been killed and squelched, and and that just breaks my heart. That's all. Well, this is this is one of the the you're getting into one of the questions I I actually had or talking points rather than questions. Uh, Is it possible that these young men that we project so much revolutionary potential on were just attempting to describe things that were affecting them at the time and not 
anthems against systems. For example, so many people love the idea of the NWA song, F the Police. But the cops were effing with so many young black people in SoCal at the time. The police, um, the police force at that time also was a lot different, you know, racially than it is now. It's pretty damn white. As these artists uh, get better indoctrinated into capitalism by becoming millionaires and in Dre and uh, in Cube's case, billionaires, they have a totally different relationship to law enforcement. Ice Cube is chilling with Tucker Carlson and Jay-Z, as you said, Jason, is helping major developers or helped major developers gentrify Brooklyn. Were they mad at capitalism? Were they just mad that capitalism wasn't working for them at the time? And this was the way that they expressed themselves? Um, or is there some sort of corruption involved? I mean, there's broad, I mean, <laughs> broad swath of people involved in rap. And I mean, at the rate of music production, you talk about this all the time, Jason, just like how much it's kept a pace of, you know, content creation. It's a lot of people to describe like why they're doing this. Um, I do want to, sorry, this is backtracking slightly, but I love the point about black people like losing cool i think about that shit all the time like how the shit is just becoming uncool how rap is the soundtrack to you know your fucking grubhub commercial <laughs> everywhere it's ubiquitous uh, and a lot of other things about losing the cool but um for a lot of you know millennial rappers and younger a lot of them are just describing shit that they see. And, you know, what I described about DMX, that wasn't a knock. That was something like I wasn't going to. Everybody all throughout the pandemic was talking about the value of seeing art, reading art, watching art, things that didn't just observe the world that you saw, but described it using the emotional schemes that you had, that you had developed, which often, not always, but often only comes from having you know, motherfuckers who grew up the way that you did so that they, the internal constellation is the same. I needed DMX and I needed a lot of these other people to describe stuff. And I needed Kendrick Lamar's Black Boy Fly because I wasn't going to get those stories real. If they were somewhere, I didn't know where the fuck to get them. But these cats are young as fuck, like a lot of these dudes, and they just keep getting younger. And, you know, when you're describing why you hate the police. I mean, I can't speak for Ice Cube, but for a lot of people my age, when you're saying you don't like the police, it's not based on theorizing about, you know, authority or who should have control over what. A lot of times it's because that literal police officer over there fucks with me. Like I know his name, he knows me, he sees me when I walk home from school or just when I'm walking around, he knows my car now that I'm driving and he's just the enemy to me in this fucking part of town and so that is why i don't like him and i don't like other people like him but it's completely fucking circumstantial i don't have you know this overarching critique about the correct use of authority and you know dispensing <laughs> justice some people do have that like i've met that dude but a lot of these like everybody in the drill scene you know the the second or third wave of like gangster rap however you want to look at it most of them are between like 17 and 22 and a lot of them don't make it past 23 um and they don't have these overarching critiques and so when people put revolutionary ideas on them they do know the score they know that they are supposed to say like they know this name they know that name 
they know that they're supposed to have a certain reverence for Malcolm X, mm-hmm. but it's to a degree a performance and one that you can understand coming from, you know, a 19 or a 20 year old who still wants to play the part. Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? I'm contemplating the video that Jason, you sent about what happened to the Black Revolution. <laughs> that was going to be a, di- a whole different show topic altogether. Um, but I, di- I did see how those two things kind of dovetailed into each other. Um, initially, that was what I wanted this show to be. I was like, nah, let's make it two different shows. Well, um, I mean, what really was really fascinating to me, man, is that how much the state uses tools of repression to neutralize any of these kind of rep- any of these quote unquote phenomena from being revolutionary, and how sometimes it doesn't have to be as repressive as the police; it can be as as subversive as popularizing or so or or supporting the manufacture of pop culture to keep people demobilized or it can be as as, as subversive as you know supporting other alternative means of creativity and within the context of the state as well so the apparatus and the mechanisms of the state to react to phenomenon are endless and i think that when we ask questions like like, why aren't people revolutionary aren't people radical i say that you know man what is the incentive for people to risk everything in a capitalist society that's telling them that the only thing that it's going to do is punish them for challenging it? That's a good point. Um, where are our hip-hop political figures? Again, culturally, we know hip-hop was has won out. But politically, is there anyone we can point to and say, that's our hip-hop mayor? Is it just Eric Adams? Isn't that just like dog and pony show shit? Like Barack Obama throws like a, you know, a party, gets dapped up by a few people. We have a picture. Tanya's Coates writes an essay. Um, Kendrick Lamar gets invited to the White House. J. Cole gets invited. I know I'm sure changing some people who are probably on the ground with actual organizations who are doing work here and there. I'm not from the West Coast, but that's you know the allure that they share about you know nipsey hustle and a few other people um there's a rapper that i know hey, be I careful am. bert it's it's hot in them streets not in- <laughs> <laughs> it's the honorable nipsey hustle <laughs> the honorable <laughs> nipsey pure last pure black man on earth hustle yeah. um but i i mean i can't think of a person if I think of somebody who's doing a lot of, you know, political activity, I end up in a place where they're not as well known. If I'm thinking of mainstream people, all I think of is, you know, pageantry. Mm. Okay. Yeah, the guy from Lords of the Underground in Queen in, Jer- in Jersey is a con- councilman. Oh, no. He's in Newark, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you you did have people who went into politics, but but if you're talking about people who slip legitimate political messages into their music at this point, um, not in any way except the most like surface level, titillating way, sort of like American fiction, it flatters the white audience, it seems political, but in the end, it really isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just not where hip hop is. That that's over uh, for us. You know, we we lost the discourse. Um, 
And, and part of that was the content era, right? The attention economy and the content era destroyed any real discourse. So we're not even examining the culture, nor do we control the discourse of the culture. I don't know how many black magazines or websites <clears throat> actually exist at this point. You know, um, I, I think we softened entry into this culture to the extent that now people feel comfortable writing about it. So if you talk about what's political in hip hop, who is the most political figure in hip hop? If you're going to be honest in terms of being the, an extension of the Democratic Party, it's really depressing. It's Lin-Manuel Miranda, a Puerto Rican aristocrat. Like that's a guy who actually moved things politically wow. for the Democratic Party. Like that, that, that fucking cornball who I went to college with, that's oh, cornball. Wow is somebody who actually does Biggie's 10 Crack Commandments remixed at a Hillary Clinton rally, right? Like at a fundraiser event. So the politics have been totally neutered. I don't he, know the last time I've seen anybody do anything. He really did something about. He did something with hip hop that I find interesting because I did watch as much as I could watch of Hamilton. And it's kind of an antiquated style, in my opinion, the way they rap. But it doesn't sound as childish as the pop rap of the 80s and 90s, where it was kind of like A, B, C, D, E, F, G. It's a little, it's slightly more complex than that. So it gives the allure that this is like real hip hop, telling a real history story. And, you know, my, I have a five-year-old, so I've watched some, you know, Disney movies that Lin-Manuel Miranda made the music to, and you can totally tell when he does it because it's the same cadence every time that he uh, he creates his music. Um, but it, it is it is interesting how he made hip hop so palatable. He sucks. You're I'm, being not disagreeing with you. I'm not disagreeing. Jason. Jason. Lin-Manuel, whatever it is, Mr. Miranda's project is a class project. Yeah. It's a class project. Yeah. It's about incorporating a diversity, equity, gender-based notion initiative of what is diversity into a class project of supporting the most corporate faction of the Democratic Party to the extent that it will include those that will be tools of that agenda. So Lin-Manuel Miranda is the hip-hop politician. What, what, what Lin-Manuel Miranda did perfectly is illustrate the perils of representation politics, right? Mm. We got an all-black cast doing a whitewashing of Alexander Hamilton's history. This is incredibly embarrassing, of course. Um, we had Flight of the Concords. Do you remember that show? Loved what it. In New Zealand? What did yeah. they do? The, the hip-hopopotamus versus the rhinoceros? <laughs> We knew that was comedy. That wasn't supposed to win artistic grants, right? We had The Simpsons did Dr. Zayas. Remember when The Simpsons did Planet of the Apes, the mural? The yeah, musical? Dr. Zayas, Dr. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. <laughs> you made a monkey out of me. We knew that was comedy. Both of those were more artful than what Hamilton was. And yet somehow we moved into an era where hip hop has become such a commodity that anyone can do it. Now, not only can anyone do it, and Believe me, I love these people. I really do. And I saw Black Thought. I saw The Roots. I saw them do a liberal arts tour for however many years, being on the road, trying to make enough money to survive. I don't begrudge them for becoming a house band for Jimmy Fallon. I don't begrudge them 
for trying to get a paycheck here and there. But you have people like Black Thought, Nas, whomever else, recording songs with Lin-Manuel Miranda. You know, when we talk about, or when I talk about the subversive spirit or the counterculture and anti-establishment spirit, that's what I mean. We never would have done that before. We would have said, well, that, there's a line there. Whether I'm political or not, whether I'm really trying to spark a revolution or not, I do know that I cannot do this, that this is so offensive to the culture that everyone will know I'm embarrassing. No one knows that people are embarrassed anymore because actually we bought into Jay-Z's edict, right? Jay-Z's whole thing was, I'm not really an MC, I'm a hustler who knows how to rap. And that kind of came to dominate as an aesthetic, not only hip hop, but the academy. You started getting these people who were like, well, I'm a hustler who happens to have a PhD. I'm, a, you know, that's like Iron Mike Dyson. These are the people on the TV. Iron Mike Dyson. You know, it's like, what the fuck is going on? Jay, here? Jay, what'd you say in the piece? Jay Z has these rich dad, poor dad albums now. Oh yeah, what was Robert Kiyosaki? Whatever. Yeah, he does rich dad, poor dad <laughs> rap, where he's telling you about drinking white wine and how you need to invest your real estate and bad, bad advice. And people love that. Oh, can I get a basket on my wall? That's what I should do. It's fucking embarrassing. Jay-Z's a very embarrassing stink for also. But here's here's my main point, and I think it's a difficult one. I don't know how many black people love themselves in this society. And it makes it very difficult, this society, doesn't it? It it really does. And this is what I see the posturing on the internet. The people are so pro-black. The people are retweeting all day and screaming. The one thing that you know is that all they want is to be on stage in front of some white people. You know, they don't genuinely love themselves. They haven't genuinely convinced themselves that they're not inferior. And that's why you see even Jay-Z at his highest heights or Kanye West, these people with all of the um, cultural capital that they have. Jay-Z is hanging out with Gwyneth Paltrow. You know, like, like, like Nas and Jay Z are, are defending Gwyneth Paltrow saying nigga. Yes. Kanye West wants to be around anybody who's not black. He's dying his hair blonde and, and blue. You can't. And that's Jay. That is so. I don't know the circles that you roll in where you are right now. I worked in, I did music for years and I worked in live music for a long time. And I remember there were places where we'd, we'd have to set up like, you know, after parties and all these other events. And there would be people like, I don't want niggas here <laughs> be like rappers like no nah, i don't want i don't want white motherfuckers here i don't want niggas doing i'm like wow that's that's very true and i'm glad you call that out about kanye west because kanye west's beef is less about something about his people or cultural and it's literally about him not getting his preferred seat at the table of of power and true and true culture not just hip-hop culture i think he really looks down upon hip-hop culture Lin-Manuel Miranda, you know, he, there's a part of this conversation that we're having because, you know, was hip hop a revolution? That's well tread ground. There's one part of it though, where for folks like Lin-Manuel Miranda, this has been a framing that they've been interested in. I mean, a few folks might remember that Tony's coach, you know, he went and debated John McWhorter on whether or not hip hop was revolutionary, whether or not it was a benefit to black people. And there is this collection of black folks who black and brown folks if you're including miranda who have been trying to get a certain type of acknowledgement from 
you know, white tastemakers with regard to rap and hip hop, particularly because if white people will appreciate it, knowing that they're not allowed to participate in it authentically, this is a continuous source that I'm allowed to write about, that I'm allowed to make shit from, that you have to buy to be an enlightened white person, but you can't compete for me with jobs here. And you also have to celebrate this work. And Lin-Manuel Miranda has been very useful, as have other folks, at getting a particular white audience to say, you know what, rap actually is artistic and hip hop is artistic and it does deserve all these accolades. And if you really pay attention to music, you can think more. And they've done this in all sorts of ways. One of them, to Jason England's point, is really, really softening criticism. You know, there's, I'll use Eminem as an example. I've seen black, white, and Hispanic, uh, you know, music critics. They love when he drops an album so that they can talk about the homophobia. Killer Mike just made a joke about how he's not on some, you know, broke back mountain shit in his most recent album. Lots of dudes, Pop Smoke, call niggas gay. It doesn't get touched. Mm -hmm. There's this way of preserving it from criticism because there's this need to imagine that rap and hip hop is radical, but in the very particular progressive lens that makes it line up in just such a way that it's appropriate for, say, AOC to walk out to a hip hop soundtrack and sound like that is all together. And it's been a way of repackaging rap as a revolution that totally sides with whatever the progressive line is on what black people think. We all think what Ibram X. Kennedy thinks, and you know, the rappers are cool with him, and rap is cool, and white people like it, the cool white people like it. Uh, Democrats, they love hip hop. That's how you know they're cooler than Republicans. Republicans like hip hop now. Trump's, Trump's making shoes for you people. <laughs> no? Am I wrong? I look into that. I saw like it's circulating on Twitter or whatever the fuck. Some picture of a shoe. He's making a show. deeply Republican. Hip hop is incredibly Republican at this Ooh. point. It's nothing but Republican. I don't even know what we're kidding about. Well, this is my final question for, for you guys. You okay, Pascal? Yeah, I was going to say I really enjoyed the monologue that Bertrand really put in there. That was really some interesting insights that he was making. He about. said Trump's shoes are called Jan Sixes. <laughs> That's fucking it. <laughs> I mean, if they were called that, irony might push me in my direction. Those shoes are so tacky. Those shoes, let me tell you something. Those are some of those tacky. I mean, like, it's it's they're racist enough that they'll be tried in the first place. But it's like, how bad taste do they think that these Negroes have? And they'd be impressed with that tacky ass. It's Trump. That nigga has never had good taste. He's a gaudy motherfucker. Look at his hair. Everything about him is classless. They never his, liked that nigga in New York. His hair is a kind of. Strong he has been tacky since he's been himself. I really just assumed after seeing him wrestle with Vince McMahon that he would just, his career would have a similar trajectory. Oh, you you figure he's gonna be shitting on people's heads too, and the tape's gonna come oh, out no. of him. I mean, I assume he's already done that. Like, <laughs> <at this point>. <laughs> <laughs> like Trump's probably like, I'm glad they didn't catch me. Sorry. Man. <laughs> um, nah, if he shit on somebody's head, he would tell you he shit on somebody's head. Because I think if he shit on somebody's head in 2024, 
there'll be people that well, hey, at least he's honest. That's all you want. <laughs> That's it. That's all it takes for you. Hey, your mother's fat and a whore. I'm just being honest. That it's works like for you. Swamp, bro. Draining the swamp of honesty. Final question. Today is the anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X. What do you think he would say about hip hop? I will start with our new Jason. How the fuck would I know what Malcolm X? Is? <laughs> Late stage enlightened Malcolm X, I think, would probably take a softer stance, but also a very comprehensive one. Um, you know, one would imagine that his critiques about celebrity culture would would ring out here, right? Um, I think he saw that very well. That that we created. Uh, once America decimated, and and let's not underrate this too. Like like sometimes I I feel bad because I put a lot of heft on my people, and I'm like, hey, you don't love yourself. You you guys are falling for the ogie though. But America systematically fucking killed uh, a lot of black leadership, and that's that's a lot to to get over. I mean, they fucking murdered black leaders, and the people who were under them, you know, one one imagines they were like, well. <clears throat> Maybe I should pivot a little instead <laughs> <laughs> might be safer. Um, right. And so like and so like there there is that fact that they, they did decimate our leadership, but I, I think that Malcolm X would say, hey, you have to have a legitimate intellectual class. It has to be not only vibrant, it has to be contentious, there has to be self-assessment, right? There has to be self-critique, and that's what we're missing. And, and I harp on this all the time. We got this culture of boosterism rather than criticism. In the 70s, you'd have seven different people going at each other's necks on a panel like this, right? Just everyone would be disagreeing. And you'd come out of that with a sort of Nietzsche-esque like, perspectivism. We've whittled down all these different perspectives to maybe an approximation of truth. Now everyone thinks the same thing, right? It, it, it's, very, it's like there's a liberal black orthodoxy that to me is no more helpful to us than whatever's happening on the right. The left has become humorless. Black people have become so aspirational and so white and so capitalistic and so American that we don't even have exchanges of different opinions and views to sharpen our station. Like, what, what the hell are we talking about? Who are our leaders? You ask who is the political rapper? Who's the political fucking politician? Who is the intellectual of the moment? It can't be these DEI people because that's not intellectualism at all, right? With, I don't know who's coming out of the academy. Most of the people who have podcasts here and there who say smart things certainly don't have bigger platforms. So um, I think Malcolm X would harp on that. He would say we've been undermined from within. Pascal, you want to talk about Malcolm X? Well, then Malcolm was said, that's what happens when you have that Obama become president. I warned you. <laughs> that's how he's, and then that was it. And he just walked out of the room. Like, Obama. When you left that night, light-skinned Negro in the White House. That's pretty fucking good. It happens all the time. These I Uncle Tom Negroes. I about Barack and Michelle, and I can't repeat the stuff I said in, in, in that voice note on this show, I don't think, even. But oh, can I, I, can I repeat it? Because I give If it. you want to, I just... Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I would love to quote it directly, but I'll paraphrase. Uh, Barack Obama's a nerd. Not very cool. Cannot play basketball. That line right there 
made me think for a second. Did this nigga scout Barack Obama? That is cold blooded. He was never a politician. No, yeah, you said right? you said for hold some on. reason I, I'm he had to... to pretend he was a cool black man, which he wasn't, who could hoop. None of that being true, nor pertinent to what he was supposed to do in office, right? And we actually fell into line with that. And we began to defend Barack and Michelle and celebrate them in ways that I associate with white culture and white celebrity culture. And now you have him out of office and his uh, essential contribution to culture is becoming an influencer, the most capitalistic shit you can be. He's he's doing listicles like he works for Anscape or something. What the fuck is going on here? I, I I forgot about the Michelle part that you said. That was pretty funny. I'm not saying nothing about that. Okay, okay, I'll keep that between us. But that was really funny. Um, yeah, Jason, Bert? Again. yeah. We got Jason England. We got to have him on again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bert, Bert Cooper. Yeah, I want you know, fuck, so many great points. Uh, that I just had to fucking touch on. You know, going back to uh. Jason England, the idea of not loving ourselves. I mean, the the idea of black self-loathing, that gets thrown around so much. But there is an aspect of this that you can watch particular trends that are happening right now, even though people don't report on a lot throughout basically the entire millennial generation. Uh, anytime you tested, you know, black folks for self-esteem, self-efficacy, they scored higher than the other groups. Anytime you looked at rates of bulimia or anorexia for black women, things that had to do with self-image and eating disorders, they were lower than other groups. And in the last few years, you're starting to see these spikes of things that we associate with lower self-esteem, lower self-efficacy. Um, so there are changes here that you can see having to do with black people potentially not liking themselves the way that they used to for whatever fucking reason, I just wanted to make that concrete. The other point that was interesting to me, especially off of Barack Obama being a nerd and Kanye West, when you look up a ton of these people, um, they have these identical traits of basically being black via, you know, both parents, one parent, but they are in some way isolated from the coolness of black culture. They're not really living amongst black people they're not playing the sports they're not in the heart of it i mean people forget like tani c coates's first book has baltimore redrawn like a lord of the rings or chronicles of narnia map and he's got stories that he tells to npr about how he wanted to be in the basement playing DD, but his mom insisted that he not be afraid of his own people and forced him out there and talk about how hip-hop was his way of connecting you can see the same shit with like Donald Glover, where all of his early stand-up is about how he's going to a white performance arts high school, and these kids were making fun of him for not being black enough. And Kanye West has the same shit on his come up. And you've got this repeating pattern of the black person who's isolated in some way and is the black kid in a room full of white people. They have this identity that they take on where they get used to being the mouthpiece for black people. And they're the blackest in the room, but only around white people. Mm -hmm. And they have these whole artistic journeys like Kanye West or Donald Glover, where eventually they're making choices to be the blackest to someone out there as if their whole life is compensating. And I mean, you even see that in little moments where Barack Obama, he doesn't have the goal that Donald Glover is. He specifically 
picked a partner because he knows how a black woman would impact, you know, help his image, as opposed to Donald Glover, who just marries a white woman but doesn't, you know, really tell anybody. Um, there's this nerdishness, this being on the outside, and then spending your whole career trying to be cool to black people and be the face of black people. And you could say the same shit about Ibram X. Kennedy. He's got the same nerdy background where he's like isolated and shit. And fuck. Coming to Malcolm X, I actually had to look up, you know, the video that Jason uh, England mentioned because that shit's just funny to me. But they hit him with this Newsweek poll when he's at an interview. And this is early stage, you know, uh, Malcolm X. I don't know what enlightened Malcolm X would say. I certainly know how. I mean, you got Pog Chaser, MLK. So who <laughs> the little bird Cooper. <laughs> I don't know how he changes over the years, but, you know, he gets asked about this Newsweek poll where supposedly the black leaders are 90% of the black leaders. This is in like 90, 1963 are siding with King over, uh, you know, Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X responding to that 90% number. He's like, I just told you a little while ago, these leaders that they call leaders, this include Lena Horne, this include Dick Gregory. And this include comedians, comics, trumpet players, baseball players. Show me in the white community where a comedian is a white leader. Show mm -hmm. me in the white community where a singer is a white leader or a dancer or a trumpet player is a white leader. These aren't leaders. These are puppets and clowns that have been set up over the black community by the white community and have been made celebrities mm -hmm. and usually say exactly what they know the white man wants to hear. And it's an honor, actually, that they endorsed Dr. Martin Luther King and were against the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. They love the white man again <laughs> and again. I wish we could go to the days when we actually realized that these entertainers were not working in our best interest. Shit, that was the other thing. <laughs> I talked about this. Jason Miles, we have talked about this exactly what Jason yeah. England said, where yeah. you read anyone writing like, Baldwin's a favorite of mine just because he writes about the different newspapers, but there is to make it to even have a chance. I love calling it this, even though it's, you know, a ridiculous position, but to even have a chance of selling out and becoming king of the Negroes, you have to work through all these layers of a black community getting to the yeah. head of an organization built in a black neighborhood. It could be an organization, could be a church, but black people know you and black newspapers are talking about you. And just the ordinary black motherfuckers like reading newspapers and they can see the people vying and people will call you out on broken promises or lying about where you come from. And exactly what, you know, England said is just fucking all these people sitting at a table like Malcolm X seems like he's doing a panel every fucking week. Um, same with all the leaders back then. They were really sitting down today. Like. When have you ever seen people that different, though? You guys all seen that panel. I think it's in the UK. It's like Malcolm X, uh, James Baldwin. There's a couple of Panthers on that panel, isn't it? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? The Panthers thing, it started because Malcolm X was dead for two was years. Dead, so it wasn't. Who was it? Who was it, Pascal? Oh, what year was it? Was it Dick Gregory? Dick Gregory was there. Somebody else was there. I can't remember. But yeah, there was so many times you could see Malcolm X speak. P PBS. PBS used to be an important place to, to see these uh, intellectuals speak and debate even. 
I mean, it's on the other side of the fence, but uh, that's where, you know, Willie Matt Buckley is for. Yeah, seeing Malcolm X debate. Did he debate Buckley or just Baldwin? One time, there was one debate between Malcolm X and Willie Matt Buckley. Buckley. Yeah, Harvard, right. Was it at him. Harvard? I don't know whether they had that conversation. Well, I don't even know who you would invite. Owens and Killer Mike, or Killer Mike in conversation with the Dalai Lama. So I guess we press. Uh, I mean, you know, and Killer Mike led. Uh, it's all, but but to Bert's point and to Jason's point, it's just all entertainers. I don't know. Sad. We're gonna go into the champagne room, where I have some hip hop videos for these guys to review. I also uh, have a new contest for Pascal. It's how long can you sit through this coon? And <laughs> wait, so in the champagne room, can I call Killer Mike a jiggly coon? You can call Killer Mike and his mama all kind of names. All right, terrific. I have no problem doing that on the main show. And that's why nobody loves me. I wish it was just that. <laughs> Pog Chaser MLK. Now, Paul Chase MLK is a man of the people. He's what people <laughs> want in a black league. like that. If Trump tells it like it is, Paul Chase or MLK. I think in the champagne room, we also created anti-racist, racist Slick Rick was another character we created in this. What? <laughs> Does he wear the eye patch on like the other eye? <laughs> like the ruler? The anti-racist, racist Slick Rick. Yeah. What'd you do to children's story? What'd you do? <laughs> <laughs> Don't fuck my youth up, man. Hey, young world got fucked up. <laughs> it's always like, just pick the most fucked up thing you could do to someone that is held in high esteem. And if my mother sends me a message that I've went too far, that I know that maybe I didn't go far enough. <laughs> hey, I, I want to say one thing. Um, I don't play the saxophone. But also, I, I want to say, we were talking about dancers. If you want to laugh, go back to LL Cool J's song, You Can't Dance. Mm. I swear to you, it's one of the funniest songs ever recorded. I did an LL run recently because he's one of the strangest hip-hop figures ever in that he's one of the greatest MCs who ever lived. And then you listen to the wrong album, and you're like, yo, this dude is trash. <laughs> well. Like, Toussaint, who's going to join us in the champagne room, who's the the one female voice on this show, had made a point about LL Cool J that made me laugh so hard. She goes, how is he your uncle, yet he's the future of the funk? <laughs> uncle L, future of the funk. <laughs> and that was, I can't dance. Laughing when she said that. But um, thank you guys so much for, for joining us for the main show. Thank you for checking everything out. If you're new here uh, or returning subscriber, please make sure to give the show a like. Share it with your people all over social media. If you're listening on Apple, make sure you subscribe so you can have access to the Champagne Room as well. If you want to join us for this fun-filled Champagne Room, which will consist of the new show I have for Pascal called how long can you watch this coon? I don't think Pascal can last two minutes. Let's put our bets in now. Jason England said he only got two minutes in and had to turn it off. Oh, you're talking about that dude. Yeah. Bert, how, how long did you watch, watch the video? Did I was you watch, to watch it on the show. Oh, yeah. 
I want to have real time experience. If you if you want a theme for the, for this, by the way, I, I used to have a, a a sketch on a podcast way back before podcasts were big. It was called it was um, you know that uh Levert Coolin just yeah. Coolin just Coolin Coolin. Say we are Coolin of the week. Just Coolin. We should have a weekly. Because that dude is the coon of my week that you He's the coon the of the fucking last five years. This dude, and he's got the lips too, so it's just the coon package When he said, y'all are so ignorant, y'all think he's white when he's actually Italian. That's when I clicked that. That's right. This nigga is the Hey, we're going to watch the champagne room. If you guys want to join us, become a patron. If you want to help this show, if you want to see more programming like this, if you want me to find more and more black people with we keep thing. coming back with more and more coons. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one way. Become a patron for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year. You can have access to Champagne Rooms past and present. Join us for movie night and so much more. On that note, there we go. Oh, shit. Fucked up. We are out.